You are listening to the Holy Cannoli Podcast. It's all about making sense of life, who we are, and why we're here. Life is sacred and life is strange. And here's our dad, Tony Gapastone. All right, we're going to start this podcast. <laughs> Thank the Lord that we didn't get too far in. I just realized... She's getting all deep, and I'm like leaning into this story with my guest today. And I look over on the recorder, and it's not red; it was <laughs> blank. I didn't press record. Ah, so thankfully, it's only been like six or seven minutes. Corinne Ostrike is on the podcast today. You, I already got just a little precursor appetizer to the juicy work that she's doing. So let's tell the audience of Holy Cannoli who you are. So my name is Corinne Ostrike. And I'm 31 years old, and I have two children, Hunter and Emma. And I am Oglala Lakota and Kanawaki Mohawk. Okay, so say that again, because I love <laughs> when you say that. I think it's so cool. Oglala Lakota. Oglala Lakota. And Kanawaki Mohawk. Kanawaki Mohawk. Yeah. And what does that mean? The Kanawaki mm-hmm. is uh, people of the river. Awesome. And um, the Lakota are... The people in South Dakota and North Dakota, there's uh-huh. seven different tribes in that area, mm-hmm. and so each one has a different, a different tie. Um, awesome. And so, and while I am in the midst of learning my languages, mm-hmm. I am not fluent in Lakota or okay. in Mohawk. Mm-hmm. My brother is actually learning Mohawk, which is how we know That's each other. That's right. <laughs> so we're connected through your brother Andrew. And he actually reached out to me through Instagram, which is so cool. So shout out to Andrew Pereira. <laughs> he was a part of the faith community that I was a part of like a decade ago. I loved your brother. I still love your brother. <laughs> he was such a honest, uh, he came in with a very honest story of how he came you know, back into his faith and going through some really crazy, intense personal challenges. Uh, and I just loved every time I hung out with him. He was just, you know, he doesn't hold stuff back. He's a pretty bold, honest dude. And when he said you had a similar kind of bold, honest story that I needed to connect with, I said, sure. So we got coffee and I said, yes, you're coming on the podcast. <laughs> and so thank you for graciously giving your time. Yeah. But so as someone who's uh, who's a, a very aware of your indigenous heritage that has also caused you to want to learn more you've actually risen up to become an advocate so you do a lot of advocacy work can you talk about that yeah i am a a, a journalist and a photographer with a website called powwows.com 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 and originally uh paul gowder is the one who started it um he started it as just a way for people to find local powwows um even Mm -hmm. like european americans who wanted to come Mm -hmm. and not just for indigenous peoples and uh it it grew. It got. It became this huge community, um, and through that, a lot of my activism has been in bringing attention to Native issues through journalism mm-hmm. and using that platform to reach large numbers of people, uh, so that they can be exposed to some of the stuff that we're going to, mm-hmm. uh, going through. Excuse mm-hmm. me. But then also so that our Native peoples have a media source where mm-hmm. th- we can go to read articles about us, written mm-hmm. by us, right? Mm-hmm. Which is very important for um, communities of color to have representation from our communities, yep. right? So, so I want to say thank you. I was telling you this before we started to record. I feel as if my I've been awakened more to understanding the plight of indigenous people, the plight of the challenge and oppression that people of color have suffered through in this country. And honestly, I, you know, I'm in my 40s and I feel, gosh, I'm just now getting uh, 
educated. I felt so ignorant to what I should have known, what the true history was. And sometimes I feel too, like, you know, in a small way, like the uphill battle, like the swimming upstream that I feel as a white, privileged, heterosexual male uh, in America. Like, and I feel a little bit like, gosh, this is hard. Then it makes me go, wow, mm. how much harder it must be right. for people of color, for people who are trying to change the narrative. Like just looking back to October, how I love that we're not calling it Columbus Day. Some people still do. Our school system actually still does. Mm. But that it's called Indigenous Peoples Day. So let's educate people because I, I feel like I, I think I represent a lot of people who don't know and maybe kind of feel some of these conversations might challenge their their uh what do you call i want to say their allegiance to america mm. it does feel some sometimes threatening yeah for many people and i i think unfortunately for christians as well because we have this idea of what our nation is right yeah and i think that a lot of that is not your fault mm -hmm. it stems from early education and learning about Thanksgiving and yep. dressing up as Indians. And yeah. um, it, it stems from the language that's yeah. used in our textbooks, things like Lewis and Clark discovered this, that, and the other thing. Or, yeah. or things like, um, you know, instead of they came upon or were, you know, that there were already people here, right? So it gives credit as a discovery as mm -hmm. opposed to mm -hmm. um, being the first European Americans to come across said thing. Um, so I think a lot of that is ingrained from a young age in a lot of, in a lot of European Americans. And I think Native children grow up knowing because our families tell us or our tribal communities and, and our nations uh, tell us from a young age about our history and our culture. And, um, but a lot of the time, it's, it's, it's suppressed. You know, that knowledge is just unpleasant mm -hmm. and it makes a lot of people uncomfortable mm -hmm. it's uncomfortable to hear about genocide of course yep. nobody wants to talk about it yeah nobody talks about it nobody learns about it mm -hmm. nobody grows from it so what do you think we need to do i mean just you know this podcast coming out beginning of december and so we're going into the christmas spirit time but we just got off of thanksgiving so you know hindsight 2020 how can we better a, educate ourselves, uh, B, be open to revisioning history, mm -hmm. and maybe even C, celebrating in a way that could truly be honoring to our true heritage. I would suggest if somebody's in this position where they want to really educate themselves, read as many books as you can by Native authors, mm -hmm. because the perspective you're going to get um, is better better understood when it's from given from a native person. Yeah. So any books by Russell Means or um, there's a book that I just finished reading about blood the history of blood quantum, which is a new form of genocide. Right? How can we, you know, quantify who qualifies as a native and and if they don't qualify anymore, then there's your erasure. Right. So um, there's huge issues. Mm. Uh, reading. I'm a huge advocate of reading anyway. Yeah. But Books by native authors are great, and I can give you some yeah. if you want. If you give us those, I'll put them in the show notes and also put them on our podcast page. Awesome. And then uh, go to a powwow. If you want to learn about native culture, go to a powwow. Uh, there's the sun uh, sunrise ceremony on Thanksgiving morning on Alcatraz Island. That, that's for anyone to go to, so long as you're respectful. On Alcatraz on Island Alca in yeah. the Bay Area. In San Francisco. So cool thing is I can probably post that invitation because you're listening to this podcast after Thanksgiving, but I'll post that invitation 
as a, a way to potentially prepare. So hopefully you saw that. And yeah, if you did go to the powwow, I'd love to hear your feedback. But what would people experience? I've never been to one. To the sunrise ceremony? I've never been to any powwow. Um, oh, at a powwow, you would experience dancing because uh-huh. powwow is really a dance. Okay. Um, and powwows started as an outlet for Native peoples to actually practice our culture legally because mm. it was illegal for Native peoples to practice any of our culture, heritage, or religion until the 1970s. Mm. So um, with the American Indian Religious Freedom Act. So powwows really stemmed from that as being our only place where we could do various uh, dances and traditions. Uh, You would see jingle dress dancing, which is what I do, um, which is actually an Ojibwe tradition uh, with the, the jingles represent prayers and mm. you dance. It's a healing dance. That's cool. The idea is you're praying and you're dancing for those who can't dance. And the jingle dress is sending a prayer up for healing. Mm. Um, there's grass dancers, which stems from when you would uh, beat down the grass to make place for your teepee. Um, so the men went in grass dancing. They have a lot of fringe on their outfits and they're very low to the ground, a lot of stomping because you're really, you're the idea was to stomp down the meadow, right? Mm. Um, and you would hear drum, the drums. There's a northern, usually a northern drum group and a southern drum group. Uh, you'd see women with lots of beadwork, lots of beadwork. Men too. It's always really all jewelry cool. that they have made right. in some way. Yeah. Right, right. And how did you come to take up this cause? What triggered in you? Did you have parents who? raise you to appreciate your culture? Was it more of not knowing? Talk about that a little bit. So my grandfather, uh, he wasn't raised in his culture. He wasn't raised by his parents. And so, but he always, you can tell it's important to him though, because when we go to my grandfather's house, there is culture all over. It's hanging on his walls in artwork. Um, it's in his clothing that he owns. It's in everything that he's collected and has. So you, I, we always knew growing up that it was important to him, but we were very Americanized. We were very colonized in, in how we approached things as American children. And did you grow up here in California? We grew up in California, mm-hmm. yeah. And so it was really my brother and I uh, who started to like say, we really want to know more about about our traditions and about our culture and not just like this pan-Indian, you know, oh, let's get a headdress f- fake stuff. Like we really wanted to know what what are our cultural views on, on our, our creation story? What mm-hmm. are our stories? Where's the, the, the real truth behind who we are? And so um, we just talked to people from our tribe and from our communities and said, look, we don't know right now, but we want to know. And we did it with pure heart and pure intention, and so it was received well. I mean, this happens all the time. People who go into foster care and who learn or who lose cultural ties. So it's, I mean, it's, it's a huge issue for a lot of people, and uh, na- tribal nations are really uh, ready and willing to welcome back their 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 children who mm-hmm. want to learn and be more involved in their community in their traditional ways. So, what are some you talked about? Um, this made me think about some just insensitive ways that maybe we're unaware of that we suppress things or brush things under the rug as as Americans, uh, maybe who aren't 
indigenous people or don't have indigenous heritage. Although if we do the DNA three and me or whatever, 23 and me, I think we would all find potentially more than we uh, could expect or probably be surprised by Mm -hmm. our ethnic heritage. But are there things that we could do better as American people to honor indigenous cultures? Um, I think that as as allies, if you want to be an ally to our community, speaking up like in your schools, like if your child has a has a celebration coming up for Thanksgiving and you know what they're planning on doing is insensitive or mm-hmm. um, us saying something doesn't do as much as when um, our, the European community will say something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's a big deal. It's a big deal to the school when it's it's Caucasian parents and families start saying, hey, we're not comfortable with this, and I don't want my child to participate. If I say something, then it's like, oh, well, she's causing trouble. Yeah. You know, oh, here's the Native woman who's going to try to get offended by anything we do. And yeah. really, that has kind of been the attitude has in the past. Yeah. I wouldn't say with the school my children are in now, but I, I there have been instances where my deciding to speak up as a Native woman about something that bothers me was brushed aside. Whereas if, if, an, if a community of allies stood up and said something, it would be probably changed. Yeah. So being an ally, I'd, I really have gravitated to that word. I'd say even prof- mostly this year, uh, doing ally work for the LGBTQ community, just having conversations around that. Uh, I feel like I'm, I want to grow more in talking about racial justice. That's been something that I've often insensitively change the narrative to me you know Mm -hmm. where when those conversations come up i can get defensive and go well i'm not racist or whatever Mm. but the reality just even having that be my first response communicates that i'm not listening communicates that although this person might not be calling me racist that's not the first thing that i need to be going to um so i think i've been i've been wondering a lot about how do we be better better listeners so I don't know if you have any thoughts around that, but you talked about bringing up this issue at your school and you felt brushed aside. You need allies. Are there ways that we could engage better? Uh, Do you have any thoughts around that? Like listening is a big thing. You talked about reading. Is there anything else that people can be aware of in regards to just the the honoring of, uh, or maybe I mean honoring, the admitting and dealing with who we are as a country, that we av- haven't always been a great yeah. America, right? We haven't been. <laughs> well, a lot, of the, a lot of the responses with that statement, right, to, to most people are, well, I didn't do such and such terrible thing. Yeah. My ancestors did, right? And really, we as a community, we're not asking you to apologize for what your ancestors did. Mm-hmm. But here is a community that is still benefiting from the privilege given to them by what their ancestors did, mm-hmm. right? And so we would be asking then to to just say, you know, that they that a community admits to benefiting from from colonialism, right? Oh yeah, we talked about yeah. that colonialism. Yeah, yeah. So like to say, so we're not saying that we want you to apologize sure. for colonialism, but to at least admit, yeah, I have some privilege because I benefit from colonialism mm-hmm. would be at least a okay, we're on the same page. Mm-hmm. Now, I benefit also from aspects of colonialism. And I'm going to be honest. Mm-hmm. As a Native woman, there are things. Like, I love my iPhone. I like, you know, Facebook. I like, you know, 
Christmas, the, mm-hmm. the celebration, which is technically a colonial holiday, mm-hmm. right? It's not traditional to Native people. So, I mean, there are things that I that I'd like about it, too. But if we all admit together that, hey, this started in a really bad way, yeah. but where do we go from here, mm-hmm. right? It's a good way, to, a good space to be in when starting that conversation. So last time we talked, again, I admitted my ignorance when you said colonialism. Like, I had to go, okay, just make sure I know I'm on the same page. When you say colonialism, how would you define that? Um, I would define it as um, a tradition coming in and telling an indigenous space how to live. What you're doing is not okay. You need to do it this way. That would be the colonial mindset. Um, that is so yeah. powerful when I just think about it. Someone, someone from the outside mm-hmm. who comes in and tells any other group that how they're living is wrong. Right. So that is sort of the basis of our country. It's, you know, so-and-so discovered and then established their reign. Mm-hmm. I think that has like grander implications in every way. Like I look at my life of faith. Some of us who have done mission work, you know, we call them mission trips and we've traveled to distant places and we've started churches and you know started missions. We have come in and done the same thing. We've said, oh, this is how you need to live. And we've caused a lot of damage. There's actually a lot of research around the reality of how Christianity has done the same thing. So that leads me to ask you, you have a faith, you Mm -hmm. have a spirituality. Uh, Talk to us about that. How do you find God? How do you express your faith in God? Or how do you understand God, especially in light Mm -hmm. of the pain that is also connected to the colonial uh, efforts in regards to God? Yeah. Um, I was raised United Methodist. And there's a huge Native community within the United Methodist community because of mission work. Okay. I would say that it was very colonial mindset in terms of Christianity growing up, and that's fine. But um, can you give some examples of that? Um, yeah, church every Sunday. I went to oh. Bible camp during the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, uh, yeah, I we did. I was part of the Christmas pageants. Mm-hmm. I was the acolyte, so I'd light the candles in church, and it's very, very traditional, mm-hmm. right? Traditional United Methodist. Uh, stuff and from my average theologian history i i know the methodists are known for their methods correct oh right isn't it like their methods and their traditions are sort of what drive their theology yeah yeah i would say okay and i'm not even totally educated on (laughs) on the history of methodism either but yeah um uh but then as I, I got older, I had, you know, life experience mm-hmm. and other things and learned more about my culture. And I would say my faith view, um, I refer to God as creator. Uh-huh. I love that. And I believe that Christ was a real person. Mm-hmm. I believe that he was sent by God just as many people were sent by God. And I, be- I believe calling in him the son of God is an appropriate term. Uh-huh. I think that's not, mm-hmm. um, I think that's not wrong uh, it feels right when I say it, mm-hmm. and I go by Doesn't my feelings a lot. Doesn't conflict with your heritage right. in any way, right? Well, and you know, and that's and that's a toughie because <laughs> because here's where culture and my um, and my religion come in, and there's this murky merge of the two, um, and they're both very important to me, and so I've kind of created this middle ground mm-hmm. where. I will pull from this and I'll pull from that what feels right. Mm-hmm. And and I believe that that's how creator wants us to live and, and there's no one right way to do anything. Mm-hmm. And that uh, if I pull 
what feels right from Methodism and I pull what feels right from my cultural views and my cultural stories that I'm I'm existing in a space that honors both mm-hmm. and that that is um, okay by creator. Now, do you say that because in some way your experience of the Christian expression through m- the Methodist church community, was there an exclusion of your heritage in some way? Or was there sort of an insinuation that your um, indigenous background or the practices of? I would say it depends on who you speak with. Okay. Within I mean, any church community, really, yeah. you're going to find people all over the spectrum between whether they're super strict about you have to think this way or you mm-hmm. don't count as a Methodist or yeah. or as a Christian. Um, but I never personally felt okay. pressured to be that way. Because I could say probably my, again, my really uneducated, ignorant assumptions it would be that a powwow in some way would be conflicting with Christian values i think mm-hmm. i don't think i would have recognized that before right. but i think like knowing my past self i probably would have been a little hesitant to go there because what god are they praying to and mm-hmm. are they going to have some sort of ritual that would seem anti-jesus in some way mm-hmm. uh is there god the same god you know and i think where i am now evolving into a place of like the like the, the book of romans paul talks about we have an understanding of God and of creation by what we see. Mm-hmm. And so there is people all over the world who don't have a Bible, who've never heard the, the name of Jesus, who are experiencing God, the transcendent, the divine creator in some way. Right. Now there are Christian groups that would say that's all the more reason why we have to get there mm-hmm. and give them the Bible mm-hmm. and teach them the ways of Christ. And I'm not against that in any way, but I've also felt as if sometimes our motivations can be that, like you said, this colonial motivation to go right. and help a community get things right and understand the world right. Right. When couldn't God, couldn't the divine, couldn't the transcendent being creator who made the universe be able to... Be in all those spaces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's interesting. And I, it's interesting, too, that you brought up about the um, the ceremonies or whatever happening at powwows because we do open our powwows with prayer. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's usually by a pastor, mm. a native pastor. So there's cool. um, our MC. Um, for the powwow that I happen to know, Tom Phillips, his dad is United Methodist pastor. Um, and occasionally there will, and they'll say the prayer in English and also in their native language, yeah, cool. which is really neat um, for people who come to that. But yeah. Is there a danger for it becoming sort of performance oriented or exploitive in any way if a non-indigenous person were to attend? Like I think when my kid, would I take my kids and w- would it feel dishonoring in some way if we no, attended? Not at all. Okay. I think if uh, you wanted to come, like, to Sundance Ceremony, mm-hmm. that would be, un- that's not allowed. It, you have to be um, in the tribal community to go to specific ceremonies. Now, you know, I love um, film, and so Sundance Film Festival in <laughs> Park oh. City, Utah, <laughs> is not named for a tribal community, I don't think. It's named for a character in a film. <laughs> yeah. But when you say Sundance, what does that mean, or where is that? The Sundance Ceremony is a ceremony uh, stemming from the Lakota culture. Okay. And it's um, where the men will go off and have ceremony so so women are in ceremony every month we call it our it's our moon ceremony and that's considered holy and it's a renewal um and then but men don't have that so the sundance ceremony is when men will go and um be in ceremony and experience um 
a sacrifice of their own because they believe that women give sacrifice through birth mm. and every month in this way and that men are... Is that like the system of every month thing? Is that what you're talking about? Like the... Menstrual the cycle. Menstrual right. Okay, okay, okay. We call gotcha. it a moon cycle. Ah-ha. But, um, so... <laughs> okay. <laughs> so men... So th- traditionally in this with the Sundance ceremony, men will go and um, they actually will inflict some... some uh, Cuts and ah, some, some some injuries, or I guess you would call uh-huh. them, on themselves in order to experience the same pain a woman would have during childbirth, uh-huh. uh, as a way of cleansing themselves and bringing them at a place that is respectful hmm. to the sacrifice women go through. Interesting. So, and that's a duality. It's like uh, Lakota men aim to embrace both their masculine and feminine side, mm-hmm. and they are hyper-masculinated if they don't go, it's too much, too much, Mm -hmm. right? They need to release and they need to renew Mm -hmm. and they need to embrace these feminine aspects of themselves. And so Sundance ceremony is very important to our men. I like calling it a moon cycle instead of a menstrual cycle. (laughs) We need to adopt that into (laughs) cultural language. I'm menstruating, just doesn't sound great. Or I'm on my period. I'm mooning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or we always say, like, I'm in ceremony right now. I, I was going to say, you said that a couple times. sweat. I'm in ceremony. <laughs> I'm ceremonying right now. Uh, and men could use that too. I love that. Yeah. Which, okay, let's get to that because you are also passionate about masculinity. Yes. Right? And yeah. you have been writing and creating stuff around that. Talk about that. Yeah. So our church, the Los Altos United Methodist Church, has uh, actually. Um, started something we call the Changemaker Initiative. And we've partnered with a social entrepreneurship organization called Ashoka. And what we did was we decided we wanted to put our faith in action. We wanted to be more than just claiming what we were doing was working. We wanted to actually make change, create change. So there's 26 fellows that were signed up or applied. And each one of us is doing something totally totally different from each other, our own fellowships of a social issue and a new and innovative way to change that issue. So for me, I the missing and murdered indigenous women is is a wide, widely known issue in the indigenous community, both in First Nations Canada as well as here in the United States, where our women will go missing and are either murdered or they're in victims of human trafficking. Um, especially because our, our tribal nations are right outside some of these, uh, some of these man camps or oil fields are yeah. right outside of our reservation. What was that film we were talking about that highlighted that issue? Oh, with Leonardo DiCaprio? Um, or no. Je- Jeremy Renner. Not, that's a different one. Yeah, Jeremy Renner. Yeah, he was in a <laughs> film where there was an indigenous community yes. and they had to find the girl. Yeah. Yes. I forgot the name of it. I'll, I'll figure it later. But yeah, so I said, you know, I want to tackle this issue, but it's so broad. And there are a lot of victim relief um, organizations already that do fantastic things. But I don't even want there to be any more victims. Mm -hmm. I want to never, I want that, that would be the ideal, right? So I said, how would I do this? Let's go at it from a business aspect, okay? If there's no longer a demand for human trafficking, what would that look like? And for me... What it looked like was uh, emotionally healthy men mm-hmm. who didn't feel the need to seek those fulfillments because they were um, in a healthy emotional state. And so uh, I designed the Buffalo Project. And the Buffalo Project, Buffalo is an acronym, 
stands for Brothers United for Feeling and Leading Openness. Came to me in the shower one day. I was just <laughs> like, oh, I should make it an acronym. But um, And what it is, it's a male-led workshop, four days long, where uh, men are going to be learning skills that they can take with them anywhere they go forever about how to create healthy emotional relationships with each other, how to evaluate their own masculinity and where, who were their examples growing up as Mm -hmm. a kid and how do we rewire our brains um, to, you know, maybe women were viewed as objects as opposed to people, right? How do you rewire that thinking with uh, neuroplasticity practices and, um, What's neuroplasticity? Neuroplasticity is the ability to rewire your brain. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> right. So, that's awesome. <laughs> so um, that's what we do is uh, cool. we go into spaces like the tech, tech companies or construction companies or um, oil companies, right? And we say, look, you know that this is a problem. The Me Too movement is already in mm-hmm. existence. Do you want to be ahead of the problem? Because we can offer you a potential solution. And whether a man comes out of this workshop and is like, oh my gosh, I have learned so much about myself and I want to do more. Or if they come out of this workshop and they're like, well, that was four days. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter because something will have been stirred and it might be a slow brewing change or it might be a quick change. But the idea is that some sort of enlightenment will have happened in those four days where Uh, where healing can really start to happen. And a lot of these men that I've interviewed and worked with before designing this program said that they didn't have another male they could come to when they were having a really rough time. Some of them said they had females that they could turn to a sister or mother. But there is something empowering in women when we can turn to each other in a hard time and get through it together. And if a man doesn't have that, that's not okay. Yeah, it's weird. There's these obstacles, I think, that men feel and face that they can't be open, that they can't admit. It's it's weak, right? Mm-hmm. And we grow up in a culture where we're told things like man up, you know, boys right. don't cry, that type of stuff. And it's still obviously prominent. And then when you see leaders and public officials and people who are in these high spaces right. who are admitting this toxicity, it's affirmed even more. Like, look, that's what standard is and so right. and uh, getting away with it yeah and getting yeah. away with it that's yeah. a big deal yeah. big deal so is this an over it's not an overnight retreat is it like a no w- workshop four days in a row type thing four days well three days in a row and then a week before the final wrap-up um and they're three hours long oh, okay yeah so it's like a friday saturday sunday for gotcha. three hours gotcha okay. and then you'd go the rest of the week and then on a saturday you have one more meeting kind of how did your week go? Like a reflection. Yeah, recap. like a reflection, yeah. Now, how do people find this, and how do they bring it to their businesses? And Yeah, so we have a website. It's www.buffaloproject.org. Okay. And um, there's a form you can fill out on the site just for more information, mm-hmm. or if you want to find out what it would be to bring, how, what it would take to bring us to your to your company. And I don't give the program. Mm-hmm. Um, as a woman, I, I don't feel like it's my place to step into that realm. I think that it's, it's we have uh, trained male workshop leaders for that. Um, and I think that's really important is to create that that's space cool. for the men. Um, it's a safe safe space then. Uh, but yeah, so reach out if, if anyone wants to know more information or have us come talk or whatever. It's so cool that you initiated that though. I mean, the way that you thought through that, the way that I can solve 
the the demand for the abuse of women or for the exploitation of women through human trafficking and just women in general, the mm -hmm. way they're marginalized is by helping men become healthier. Right. That's awesome. And I've had people actually say, like, what makes you think as mm -hmm. a woman that you have the, what gives you the audacity, right, to step into this position as an authority or whatever? And I, f when I hear that, I always think um, that culturally, right, for, for me and my culture, women and men, it was a partnership. Mm -hmm. And so if we saw our brothers mm. falling or in pain, of course we would step in and yeah. try to do something. Why would I let my brothers continue to suffer? Right. Why would I let the men that I love or who are around me and my brothers in faith continue to be in pain? And so, yes, I'm a woman, but here I am reaching into somebody's pain and somebody's hurt with feminine energy to try to help balance them, to try to help heal mm -hmm. these people. So, um, and that's part of the Buffalo Project uses um, some indigenous values. And I think that's what kind of sets us apart as different cool. from other programs mm -hmm. is we, and not just Native American cultures either. I encourage the men who are in that space, we learn about like pre-colonial Viking views on masculinity mm -hmm. and, uh, and the shield maidens, right, who fought alongside. So there was... There was duality in lots mm -hmm. of European-American cultures as well. So mm -hmm. I bring that into the space as some affirmation for these men who are going to be here that we got to get back to everyone's traditional roots, which involves being healthy men. I, I mean, I'm kind of blown away thinking about that. I think it's super stealth. <laughs> like It's <laughs> really necessary. Yeah. And I, I'm tying that back to your appreciation for creator and your desire to create and the divine God making this opportunity with you. You know, it's funny. I've said this before to my wife. I'm, I think on this podcast too, but the inequality between men and women is just crazy to me. Like the fact that women would be treated any less to get paid less or valued. It blows my mind. Cause honestly, I'm saying this, you know, super humbly and honestly, when I think about it, women are more valuable to me than men in culture because men cannot produce life. Men cannot. <laughs> yes, you need a man to insert the seed, the sperm, but right. women nurture this child for nine months in their womb. And you, to me, are superheroes. You, you to me, are <laughs> gods. I mean, and that's the, the whole thing. Like we're supposed to be like God, and God creates, and God makes, and you women have the ability to do that, which blows my mind. So mm. that makes me think about this next phase of your life and story that I want to talk to you about. You have a lot of stuff, Corinne, <laughs> going on. You're, uh, you're married, you have kids, you're a photojournalist, you're an advocate, you're starting these uh, initiatives for men, but you're also something super significant that as we go into December 2018 here, I feel is really pertinent to the narrative of nativity, and that is you're a surrogate. Mm-hmm. Talk yeah. about that. <laughs> so that sounds like something new age, like you're a robot or something. But yeah. for people who don't know, surrogate <laughs> is what? Surrogacy is when um, a woman will carry the child who is genetically not her own for another couple or for someone else who cannot, mm -hmm. for whatever reason, carry their own child. So um, I've had five children. Uh, my my two children, Hunter is seven, Emma's five. And then I had a little girl in 2014, her name's Aliyah, and for her parents. And her parents uh, went through 20 miscarriages in wow. their journey to become 
to become parents. And uh, so I stepped in and carried their baby for them. And then uh, a year and a half after that, I carried twins for uh, two dads who are from San Francisco, and they wanted to have a family. They've been together for 20 years, and they wanted to have um, some kids. And so they got two (laughs) insta-family, right? (laughs) So I've never met a woman who's done that before. So I was so fascinated. So that's why I, I said, you know, when Andrew told me to talk to you, I thought I didn't know I was getting that part. I mm. thought I was getting the... Yeah, that was an aside, advi- I think, yeah. right, in our conversation. You're I like, mean, wait, what? I was like, what? <laughs> You're like Mary. Okay, so let's talk about that. Okay, so how did you, how does one decide to have babies inside of her that don't belong to her? How does that mm. work? Uh, well, I guess, so it happened when my daughter was about six months old. She was teething. And uh, we were having a really rough night where she wasn't sleeping. She kept rolling and screaming. And and it was just, I was exhausted. I just wanted to sleep. Mm. And I was rocking her. And it was 3 in the morning. And I was crying. She was crying. And God took that moment of extreme vulnerability in my life to speak with me. And I feel like that's when God speaks the loudest is when we're totally broken. Mm-hmm. right? And um, And I just said, you know, as miserable as I am right now, there is a woman out there who would give anything to be as miserable as I am. <laughs> really. Parenting and, can uh, be so miserable, you know, <laughs> but, but beautiful. You know, so she, I was thinking about this, this situation, and I said, you know, I have the ability to carry a healthy baby in pregnancy. I can help. I can do something, and I should. So at three in the morning, after my daughter went back to sleep, I started researching online about how to become a surrogate, which in 2014, there wasn't a whole lot out there. So you knew of the, that, that I it knew, is possible. Right. I knew about it. I didn't know how or if I could even be a surrogate mm-hmm. or what was required. Okay. But, um, You're in your mid-20s at that point? Yeah, I was 25. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so uh, yeah, I couldn't stop thinking about it. Wow. I couldn't let it go. And I... I would say borderline became obsessed with it because mm. I kept trying to be like, oh, well, maybe not. But God, when he wants you to do something, is not going to be easily ignored, wow. I would say. I mean, he put a burning bush in front of Moses to get uh-huh. his attention, right? So uh-huh. so here is my burning bush, this I can't let go of it. I can't. I was, it was like an itch, like I'm antsy and I'm anxious mm-hmm. and I'm uncomfortable in my own skin until I listen, until I hear God. And so... Uh, I talked to my husband about it, and we learned as much as we could about it. And he said, you know, I can see this is really important to you, and I think we should do it. Wow. Yeah. That's a bold, supportive move as a husband to say, <laughs> I know how challenging it is for my wife to bear children. <laughs> yeah. And to then let, or not let, but support right. and say, like, you're going to go through that. You're going to go through all the aches and pains, all the challenges, all the ways it's going to affect our family, but for the greater good of another family who can't mm-hmm. have a baby. That's amazing. Your husband, that's amazing. You're amazing. Thanks. <laughs> uh, so talk more. So you start researching. Because I remember at one point you had thought, you told me uh, about how you thought you had to pay. Yeah. I thought I was going to have to pay all this money in order to become <laughs> a surrogate. And I was like, well, I told my husband, I said, it's like, it's like, $150,000 to do this. Like, are we, are we sure we want to do this? <laughs> and he's like, well, I don't know. And so, and then we found out like, no, it's not that. Like 
the parents pay for my yeah. medical bills and everything. Yeah, so yeah. I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> never mind. <laughs> the fact that you even like better. still said yes after thinking you might have to pay says something. God speaks. And I like talking about that on this podcast is how do we hear God? Yeah. You had a sense, you had a real sense that creator. You had a real visceral reaction mm-hmm. yeah, when God talks. So then what happened? How did, how did the first time go and what does that all entail? Yeah. So, um, the agency that I work with, because I didn't feel comfortable doing it without support sure. or legal representation, um, they've said, you know, we have this couple that has gone through 20 miscarriages, and they really liked your profile because you write something uh-huh. about yourself, why you want to be a surrogate. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we met, and it was just, it just felt right. Mm-hmm. It just felt like these were good people, and she was an OB, her mm-hmm. job. That's her oh, job. Wow. Yeah, I know. So to go through all that and then deliver other women's babies and still not being able to carry her own, she would get to about 14 weeks pregnant, and then for whatever reason, her body was not able to carry the baby any further than that. Mm-hmm. So this is like, it's wow. pretty significant into your So 20 pregnancy. miscarriages, that's probably about 10, to 10 years of yeah. trying, potentially. Yeah. So then, uh, so I went through the IVF process, and they had only one embryo at, that survived at all, only one. Wow. And they said, they said, it's either this, this is our f- only attempt that we can ever do. Yeah. It's, if this doesn't work, then we're just not meant to have children. Mm-hmm. And, oh, prayer, like lots mm-hmm. of prayer, right? And she stuck around, and mm-hmm. we were really, really excited. And she was born totally healthy. And I remember in the labor and delivery room, her mom was holding one of my legs, and her dad was up, the dad was up by my head with uh-huh. Jason, and they were Who's both Jason? Right oh, your husband. My husband, yeah. sorry. With my husband, and um, and I pushed that baby out, and mm-hmm. she went right into her mom's arms, and the whole, there was not a dry eye in the room. Wow. It was the most spiritual experience mm. I have probably ever had. Really just, like, God is there. Yeah. And everyone knew uh, it. Birth is so mysterious well, birth crazy. is amazing in general yeah. right but and then to see this woman finally able to hold her child yeah. oh my gosh it's and it so like for listeners Christmas. because i was because again i'm like uneducated uh th- i i was asking you before like how the whole process works and how do you give a child in which you nurtured in your own body like did it feel hard and challenging uh but the first thing that you said that i was like duh is that there's no biological connection. Mm-hmm. You're, you know, sorry for the crass reference. You're just an oven. Right, you know? right. You're just baking. With their bun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how, yeah, talk about that. Does, does yeah. emotionally, does that help you stay kind of where you need to stay? Because that's not the case because they put a, you know. And I think, I well, I think the big part of it is I went into this for the outcome, right? For uh-huh. the for the family, not yeah. because I wanted a baby of my own. Yeah. I already had two kids. Sure. Um, so the relationship that I created during that time was with the parents. Mm-hmm. I l- loved the parents, fell in love with them, really, and just their story and wanting to make sure they, that they got their happy ending or their happy beginning, I should say. That's cool. And um, so when the baby is mm. born, it was like, oh, your baby's so cute. You know, I'm holding my friend's baby. Yeah. And, it, yeah, it's, it was t- entirely different from delivering my own children. So it wasn't hard? No, it was no, not hard. You didn't it feel connected. You like it was your child. Mm-mm. And your kids, no, how I do they deal? Couldn't see mommy's <laughs> belly, but the they, child doesn't come back. They are going to grow up thinking doctors <laughs> put your baby in your tummy at all the time. <laughs> no, but <laughs> I, uh, 
I, t- I tell them, you know, mommy's going to go to the doctor and the doctor's going to put uh, such and such their baby in my tummy. And then when and I'm going to help their baby grow when their baby's nice and and big and, and ready mm-hmm. to come out, then I'm going to give their baby back to them and they'll be a family. And my kids are just like, OK, the wonder of science. <laughs> this is a TV show, by the way. I have when, last time we talked. I'm like, this would be a great TV show. <laughs> my life yeah. as a sitcom. So then you did uh, a set of twins. Yep. Hello. For two dads, how funny yeah. is that? Two dads in San Francisco. Yes, and uh, I think we also talked about how, so they had the same egg donor, right? Wait, say that again. They no? had the same egg donor, so that the twins okay. had the same egg donor. Same egg. So the same biological mother. Okay, yes. And each father fathered a child. So they're technically so half-sibling fraternal twins. That is crazy. Wait, is that one egg though or two eggs? There were two eggs. Oh, there were two eggs. So right. two eggs in each dad yeah. gave a sperm to each egg. That yeah. is mind-boggling. So is that a boy and a girl? Yeah, boy and a girl. That is wild. Okay, and so now the cool thing is you are doing it again. We're recording this podcast the end of October, mm-hmm. and you will know by the time this podcast comes out if you have another child or two. Right, uh. yeah. So I'm doing a, I'm, this journey I'm doing is actually the first couple I was telling you about with Aliyah. Yeah. Uh, her godfather this is for his for her godfather. So I've known him for years, and he has wanted to have a baby. And so did they contact you through this couple who yeah. knew? Wow, word of mouth. Agency, yeah. So <laughs> I already knew him, and he's like, he four years ago even was like, hey, would Crit, would you ever consider wow. maybe caring for me someday? And I said, yeah, well, maybe. That's I'm pregnant crazy. now, but. <laughs> so if a woman wants to do this, how do they go about it? Can you talk? Can you name the agency? Give them a website. Yeah, sur- uh, surrogate alternatives Inc. In uh, San Diego, La Jolla, and um, Surrogate Alternatives has been amazing in terms of why I feel very comfortable coming back mm-hmm. and continuing to do it because these women that work there have all been surrogates themselves, and it's like a family, really. Mm-hmm. So if something is happening or I'm emotional or whatever, <laughs> I can reach out to this community of women that it's all really just women who support each other and their support groups and. It's amazing. So you would have to, if someone wants to be a surrogate, you would have to um, have not had any life-threatening emergencies during your delivery. Uh-huh. You have to have children already. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, that's a requirement. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And then, um, and huh. then there, I mean, there are a little, you can get a doctor's note for various things, like if you had gestational, di- mm-hmm. gestational diabetes or whatever. But um, you, you interview with them, and you have to go through psych screening. You have to go through criminal cool. screening, all yeah. that, just to make sure that you're going to be a good person because you're going to carry somebody's sure. baby. Sure, and is a do lot. you get a paycheck? I'm sorry, I need to ask. Like, do you benefit off this? There's reimbursement for pain and suffering. Okay, But if yeah. you're going to do it for that, it's not enough. It's not <laughs> enough. Okay, <laughs> like gotcha. it's really, yeah. it's really not enough. Gotcha. It's, it's just more like an added... Uh, we know you are going to mm-hmm. miss work. We know you're uh-huh. probably going to need babysitting. Uh-huh. Yeah, that gotcha. kind of thing. Okay, cool. You're truly like Mary, the the mother of Jesus. I oh mean, the no. sacrifice that she did. I know. I'm, you know, <laughs> don't get the big head. I'm just saying. No, no. The beautiful thing is, we go yeah. into the Christmas season. I'm thinking like this is a wonderful story. That any. I mean, Mary is said to be a teenager, 13 years old, right? Mm. And her taking this invitation from God. Uh, could have meant that she could have been killed because if you're yeah. pregnant outside of wedlock, you are stoned, you know, with rocks. They could mm-hmm. throw you. They could disband you from the village, from the community. And she was willing to do that because of her high esteem for God, which in, you know, in this, in some way 
Corinne, like as you talked about hearing from God, that's what I think that was too. You're saying yes. You're saying, let my soul magnify the Lord. If I can right. bring life, if I can partner with the divine and bless another person in this world, yeah. that's really beautiful. So thank, thank you. you for sharing that story. That yeah. is amazing. Is there anything else you want to share at all? Um... I don't know. I don't think so. Okay. I covered a lot. That's great. <laughs> I ha we have this tagline where we say life is sacred and life mm -hmm. is strange and that we want to embrace it all. And I truly look at your life and go, you have truly embraced every strange, every sacred thing. But thanks for the work that you're doing for men and for couples who want to be parents. It's beautiful. And for the indigenous cultures, as well as I hope our listeners today to recognize all those podcast, all those uh, websites she shared and books, we'll put them on the Facebook page, but let's be people who learn and who know more and who can appreciate and have conversations and sit with people and admit <laughs> we're ignorant and go, you know what? I did mess up. I did put a big feather hat on at Thanksgiving and I should have done that. And mm -hmm. maybe the inflatable Indian and Turkey on the, the front lawn at, at Thanksgiving, let's not do that next year. Cause that mm -hmm. might be uh, a little bit marginalizing to the story that really is um, not about that for right. those celebrations. Right. So thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> Holy Cannoli Podcast is a proud production of Brave Maker Media. For more information or to donate, go to bravemaker.com to make your tax-deductible donation today. You can post questions or suggest topics for the podcast on our Holy Cannoli Facebook page or use the hashtag Holy Cannoli Podcast on Twitter and we might read your question or suggestion on air. Thanks for listening to Holy Cannoli. If you liked my dad's podcast, please subscribe, give it a review, and share it with someone you think would be encouraged by it.